Well, every year, Christians gather, they uh, drink hot cocoa, they eat Christmas cookies, um, and then they do things with their family to try to rehearse and remember the Advent story. Uh, if you're like us, we every year we pull out our old nativity sets, we dust them off, we go through each character with the kids. Now, who was this again? And what happened with this, with this character or this person? We have the shepherds who came to see the child lying in the manger, the angel who announced the good news, the wise men who had come from a far off land. Typically, um, our family, by the way, puts them on the other side of the mantle, right? Because they're not supposed to be there yet. Um, and of course, we have Mary and Joseph in the manger taking uh, center stage. However, I have yet to have a nativity scene that includes two really important Christmas figures, Simeon and Anna. Like, I, I've never had a nativity set that has those two people on the side. I've never been to a Christmas pageant that has a Simeon and Anna. In fact, when I was a kid, um, we were fighting over who was going to... We had so many kids in the kids' ministry that uh, we didn't have enough parts for everybody. So people were fighting over who's going to be a sheep, who's going to be a camel. They made me a chicken. Didn't even know they were chickens in the nativity scene. But they made me a chicken. Um, but we didn't have a Simeon and Anna. Nobody got those parts because apparently they're not a part of the nativity story. It's really quite a shame though, isn't it? Because Simeon and Anna teach us a lot about Advent. They teach us a lot about Christmas, the nature of what Christmas is. So today we start off last week in our Advent series uh, going through the first half of Luke 2. And today I just want to take a few moments, not not super long, um, just to point out a few gospel truths that we find from the story of Simeon and Anna. First, we see in this section of text, Luke's subtle message that Jesus has come to fulfill the law and what that meant for Simeon. He does it in a number of ways. First off, he wants you to, wants you to understand that Jesus did everything according to the law of Moses. He was circumcised. He was presented at the temple at the right time. It's almost repetitive. Verse 22, verse 23, verse 27, verse 39, over and over and over, all things have been done according to the law of Moses. Now, that may seem like a subtle detail and by far may not seem like to you a Christmas detail, right? That Jesus was circumcised and that he fulfilled the law. Like you might not think of that detail first and foremost on Christmas, but in the context of Simeon and who he is, it's a really important detail. Simeon is described as someone who is righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation or the comfort of Israel. He had the spirit upon him. For Luke, it is the fact that Simeon is waiting for Israel's comfort. That sets the, the backdrop for the whole story. Now, why did they need comfort? Why did they need consolation? You know, it goes all the way back to Isaiah 40, where God promised, comfort, comfort my people, says her God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is over and her iniquity is pardoned. And she has received from the Lord's hand double all her sins. So we have Simeon waiting for the consolation. We have Isaiah 40 promising consolation. But why did they need consolation? From the very beginning, when humanity first disobeyed God, we proved an utter inability to do what God says. We cannot keep the law of God. 
Israel was given the law of Moses from the word of God himself. God descended on Mount Sinai, revealed himself through thunder and lightning and a booming voice, gave them his law. You would think if anybody could keep the law of God, it would be the people who heard it from the mouth of God. And yet, even, even hearing the law of God from the mouth of God could not enable God's people to obey him. They are completely inequipped to obey God. Why? Because sin rests in the heart. And the wages of sin is death. So as long as sin is in the heart, God's people are going to sin. And as long as they sin, they're gonna die. And Israel proves that story for all humanity. It's representative of many ways, in many ways, of us. We have sinned against God. And like Israel, we have been, de- we have been condemned for judgment. Israel received the law of God. They heard it. They couldn't keep it. They loved the gods of the nations. They did all the things that God told them not to do. And their idolatry slowly but surely led to their self-destruction. First came the Assyrians, who kind of handicapped Israel, drove away the northern tribes and, and really hurt even Judea. Then came the Babylonians who completely toppled down the temple and left Jerusalem in ruins. And then there was the Greek and that megalomaniac Antiochus Epiphanes who rode the pig into the temple and then slaughtered a lot of the Jews afterwards. That's why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah was because of that event. And then after them, you get the Romans. And so from the time that Israel had been first Uh, sinning against God and had been judged for it, Israel has been waiting to hear this message, comfort, comfort my people. You're here in the same boat. You are a sinner. And because of your sinful heart, you cannot help but sin with sin in your heart. Christ has come to fulfill the law that you could not fulfill. He did all things according to the law of Moses, was absolutely pure, kept every single one of them. Every single precept was held up perfectly by our Lord and Savior because we couldn't do it. And if it had been left to us to do it, we'd have been left in death. And yet it is because of our good God that Jesus came and took on flesh and fulfilled the law so that his actions, his obedience would be counted as our obedience, that he would be punished for our disobedience. And yet when God sees us, he sees us as Christ. When God sees you, if you've trusted in Jesus, he doesn't see you as the adulteress anymore. He doesn't see you as the liar He doesn't see you as the greedy and the gossiper. He sees you as his son. That's the beauty of union with Christ. Christ came and lived perfectly so that everything he did could be attributed to you. So that now when God sees you, he doesn't see all your acts of unrighteousness. Through faith in Jesus, he justifies you, declares you good with him. Why? Because his son is good. Because his son is perfect and spotless. It's not that we are perfect. It's not that we are sinless. It's that that God chooses to consider us in light of who his son is. Because we are in Christ. If you've never read the book On the Incarnation by Athanasius, it's a classic for Christians to read. 
Athanasius writes this, that Jesus took on flesh and died under the penalty of the law, though he kept the law, so that on the one hand, with all dying in him, the law concerning corruption in human beings might be undone. And on the other hand, that as human beings had turned towards corruption, he might turn them again to incorruptibility and give them life from death by making the body his own and by the grace of the resurrection, banishing death from them as straw from the fire. Here's the beauty of what he's saying there. Jesus became like you. He became corruptible in a sense, right? To where his body could die so that he could receive your death And then he rose again so that you could receive his life. He fulfilled the law that you couldn't keep, received the death that you deserved so that you could have the life that he deserves. It's the beauty of the gospel message. Simeon's waiting for that message, for comfort, comfort, my people. Your iniquity is forgiven. Your sins have been dealt with. And for him, that comes in the form of baby Jesus, who is going to perfectly keep the law of Moses and bring comfort to God's people. The second thing that Simeon helps us see is that Christ is our salvation, and through that salvation, he is creating an international people of God made of Jews and Gentiles. You see, there's that day that Simeon felt drawn to the temple, and he sees Jesus, and he takes Jesus up in his arms, and then he poetically prophesies, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation I just want to stop there for a second. He's holding a baby person, baby Jesus. He doesn't see, he doesn't say, I have seen the one who is bringing salvation. He doesn't say, I have seen the one who will accomplish salvation. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. You see, salvation isn't a thing, it's a person. It's not just something that we get. It's someone that we have, someone that's been given to us. Jesus is salvation. He is salvation. That in Simeon's eyes, my eyes have seen your salvation. It's the little baby in his hands that you have prepared in the presence of, and here's the big, the big emphasis, of all peoples, everyone. A light for revelation for the, to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon goes on to say that this child who's been prepared in the presence of all people, he's, he's gonna be a light for the Gentiles, Gentiles like us who dwelt in darkness, who didn't know God, who were groping and looking for truth, who would have never known God. We didn't have the law of God. We didn't have the promises. We were not a part of the commonwealth of Israel. There's no way in which we should have the truths that we now know and that are so common to us now. And yet Jesus shows up and he dawns a light on the Gentiles. He took on flesh so that we Gentiles could know the Father, so that we could know the unknowable God, as we mentioned yesterday, so that we could access the inaccessible God, so that we could approach the unapproachable. He came. And how amazing is it? We human beings, we love to worship what we can see, what we can touch, and what we can hear. We love to worship the things that we can physically, that our five senses can physically interact with. And knowing that about this, God sent his son 
who is God in flesh, someone that we could see, touch, and hear. That's what, John, that which we have seen, that which we have beheld, that which we have touched, First John 1. God's like, you idolatrous people will never worship the invisible God if you don't see me. Here's my son in the flesh to make the invisible God known. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We know God not because we ascended up a ladder or a stairway to find him, but because he descended and dwelt among us and shone his glory among sinners like us. He's not just the light for the Gentiles, but he's also glory to the people of Israel. He's literally the restoration that they've been looking for, the Messiah who would restore them to everything they've ever hoped. Jesus is the yes and amen to every promise. It's quite amazing to see that. For Simeon, death has quite literally lost its sting at that moment. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace. How great it is to die in that way because your eyes have seen God's salvation, a light for Texans, for Gentiles, and glory to Israel, given so that all may see and know the Father who was once so far out of their reach. Death's teeth got knocked out for Simeon at that moment. No fear. Nothing. He was ready. Now your servant may depart in peace. We have that same joy because our eyes have seen the salvation of God in Jesus Christ and because we have trusted in him. Third, Simeon teaches us that Jesus has come to exalt some and humble others. Jesus' coming is not good news for everyone. It is good news that has been made accessible to all, but it's not good news for everyone. Here's what he says to Mary. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. The rise and fall language connects back to Mary's Magnificat and her own praise where she sings that God has brought down the mighty from the thrones and has exalted the humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sends away empty. It goes back even deeper into the Old Testament where you see this great re reversal where Haman's exalted to sit on the, prince's, on the king's horse and Mordecai is humbled, or uh, Haman is humbled. You see that great re reversal where the humble are exalted and the self-exalting are humbled. And here Simeon says, that's come in Jesus. With his songs and message of Christmas, Advent warns us against pride. It warns us against being proud self-exalters. It warns us against being those who try, to, who try to do things on our own, who try to have some kind of independence from God. It warns that there's a day coming where the self-exalting will be toppled. And so when we think about Jesus and Jesus as an infant lying in Simeon's, cuddled up in Simeon's arms. You think about this being the God who made all things, through whom all things exist, by whom all things exist, the exact imprint of the Father's nature, who holds up all things by his word. All of that was true at that same moment. When Jesus was a baby, he did not empty himself of any divine attribute or else he would stop being God. He's still very much the omnipotent, sovereign creator of all things, just with a human nature now. 
He emptied himself by taking on something. He emptied himself by being God, fully God, but now identifying as a finite human being. And all of that being this great picture of God who is most high coming and dwelling with the lowly. If you don't make that move with him, that U-shaped life where you, you humble yourself and wait for his exaltation. You see, if your life is shaped up, inverted like that, to where you're exalting yourself, you will be humbled. But if you follow Christ in this U-shaped life of humility, waiting for the Lord to vindicate and exalt, then the great reversal is for you. It's good news for you. Simeon even gives us a little bit of a picture of what's to come, how this great reversal is gonna come. He says to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, describing this entrenched, bitter thing that's gonna happen, this hurtful, painful thing. And then it says that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. How scary is that? That there's a time coming when the internal thoughts of a person's heart, that's the deepest level that we have. The thoughts of our hearts are the most internal, internal, internal secret affairs that we have. And that's in Christ that those thoughts are revealed. Again, it goes back to the Magnificat where Mary says that God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. The proud are those that have these secret thoughts about themselves, these self-exalting tendencies. And yet it's in Jesus that all things are revealed to, see, to show whether or not you are proud or humble. One commentator explains this, Jesus's ministry, and I would add his life and his death and his resurrection, shows where hearts really are before God. We can all convince ourselves that we're humble. We can all convince ourselves that we're good. And yet it's in Christ that the truth is revealed, that the thoughts of the hearts are revealed, that the reality of what's true about you is revealed. And for some, it will mean a fall. And for others, it will mean a rise. Simeon's warning all that there's gonna be a day when they'll have to face this baby in his arms and reckon with God himself, with how they think in the secret corners of their hearts. Christmas is a warning shot to the world just as much as it's good news. It's joyful news. Joyful news that God sent his son to because it was an act of supreme love and yet it's also a warning shot. Don't be a self-exalter. Don't be proud in any, in any relation of the term. Just avoid that. Be humble. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you in due time. Christmas is a warning to avoid pride. Finally, we get to sweet Anna. I think I would have, out of all the people I want, want to meet, these two people, Simeon and Anna, just what, a, what an amazing figure she is in the story. She's so often overlooked. She's a true daughter of Israel. She's from the tribe of Asher. If, you, if you've overlooked that detail in the past, Asher was destroyed by the Assyrians. So this is a remnant of northern Israel that has survived all the way up to her, okay? Uh, Anna was married for seven years. And so if, if you don't know about the, the culture back then, you'd start marrying off daughters at 12 or 13, give or take. 
maybe a little older, but for sure there's no women getting married up into their 20s. That, that would have been culturally odd. So women got married in their teenage years. Let's just do it conserv- say it conservatively and say she got married at 14, okay? She was married for seven years, which means she would have been how old when her husband died? Because her husband died seven years in. Somebody better than me do the math. 21, right? Okay, seven, seven, okay, good, good. My wife's giving the head nod. I have a doctorate, but I don't know math. So husband died at 21. She's 84 when Jesus and Mary and Joseph step into the temple. Which you, if you know about the temple complex, there's, it's not a hotel, it's not a hostel. There's not rooms that you can rent out. There's no Airbnbs right there in the, in, the, in the temple. You've got your rooms and your libraries and your Levitical rooms, but you don't have very many places to stay. I mean, people might've slept on the steps or they might've slept in Solomon's porch, but they wouldn't, it's not this most comfortable place. But this is where she decides to stay. She stays in the temple and what she do? She fasts. She prays and she waits for six decades, 60 years. Why did she never get married again? It was totally permissible for her to do it. She was young enough to. I don't wanna color too much into the text that, that we don't have, but when I, when I see Anna, I see someone who is incredibly heartbroken, dreams shattered, I think it's quite possible she loved this man, right? That died, married for seven years and then dreams got wiped away. I've been married for 12. I know some who uh, by the end of this year are gonna be newlyweds, right? Come December 31st. And when you first get married, you have all these dreams of all everything that's gonna happen, right? You get your visions of happy family and children and grandchildren and you start thinking about life down the road. But Anna didn't get any of that. Seven years in, husband's dead. Dreams are shattered. Here's what I think. This is the beautiful thing that Anna teaches us. Wait. Just wait. Some of you have deceased children. Some of you have deceased husbands and wives. Some of you have buried your mothers and your fathers. Some of you still haven't gotten over that your grandma passed away last year. Some of you have lost friends. And all of that is really painful. There's no diminishing the fact that that is suffering. That hurts. But Anna shows us that even if you have to bear that pain for six decades, a day is coming when that sorrow will be replaced with joy. Six decades of being in the temple, of not eating. She, she ate some, but she fasts. She has these, this practice of fasting regularly and praying and waiting. And I can just see her, her tear-stained face, her wrinkled face of just all the sorrow she's borne for all these years, praying in the temple for what? For redemption so that husbands don't have to die anymore, so there's no more widowhood, so that Jerusalem could be what it should be. Six decades of getting up, watching her face, going to the temple morning sacrifice, 
praying and praying and fasting and dealing with stomach pains because of fasting and then going to bed and getting up the next day and praying and crying and weeping and why is he dead, Lord? And when is redemption gonna come? And then going to bed and getting up the next day and doing that 365 days a year, 60 years. Until she gets up one day to pray and she looks up and she sees Jesus. She did the same thing day after day after day until the one day that she saw Jesus and it says she began to thank God and to speak of him to who all were waiting for redemption of Jerusalem. I don't know how long you have to wait until you get to hold your loved one again. I don't know how long away redemption is. I don't know how many more pains and sorrows and sufferings we have to go through before we get there. We have miles and miles to go, I'm sure. And yet, Anna whispers a sweet message. There's an end coming to that suffering. There will be a day that even the loss of a husband will be overshadowed by the great joy of knowing that Christ has come to redeem all things. That's why I love Anna so much is because we don't relate to the shepherds that much. You know, most of you shower, and so that kind of sets you off from them anyway, right? They're pretty smelly. We're not wise men for the most part, either because we're wise or we're, we're not rich either. So we don't really relate much with them. I think if there's anyone we relate with most, it's Simeon and Anna. I feel like they have the most to teach us. Just these two elderly people who had suffered long and just waited. Simeon waiting for the consolation of Jerusalem Anna waiting 60 years to be able to be turned into a thanksgiving worshiper. My friends, it's Christmas 2022. We celebrate an Advent that's already happened and we will celebrate Advent next year, an Advent that already happened and there will be new losses. There will be people who have died in this church. There will be people who will have lost jobs and lost spouses and children maybe. God forbid any of that happening. But there will be some people not sitting here next year possibly. And it's at that moment, Anna and Simeon just, they come and they put their hands on your shoulders and they say, just be patient. Just as we were waiting for the first advent to come and we waited and we waited and we waited and then he was here. Now you're waiting for the second and you will wait and you will wait and you will weep and you will cry and you will mourn and you'll ask why and then one day you will open those teary eyes and he will be here. And it will be the final last advent and he will never go away again. Christmas is all about being patient and waiting. Just like I tell my kids, we 
put the Christmas presents under the tree? It's a mystery. What's in those wrappings? What's in those boxes? What's under the tree? I love it. I love everything about it. I spiritualize everything about Christmas in our house. It's a mystery waiting to be unwrapped. Just wait. We do the advent calendar. Boy, 25 days of walking it through and every day hearing, six more days, seven more days, eight more days. You know, it's, you know, just every day, this declaration going out from my youngest telling us how many more days until the day's finally here. Well, today we woke up. It's Christmas morning. They're ready. They're excited. It's time to unfold the mystery and to participate in the joy. And all of that's just a small picture of what we get to have in big ways. Right now, at the end of the day, presents are just presents. And I told, as I told them this morning, these presents will end up in dumpsters someday or they'll end up in boxes in the attic. They'll end up somewhere. But all of this is pointing to presents that will never be boxed, never be donated, never be trashed. Presents that you won't ever want to trash because they are presents like getting to drink wine with Jesus in the new kingdom. Presents like getting to walk on earth without being interrupted by death. The ability to hold hands with loved ones without the fear of ever, ever losing them again. Just wait. Advent is coming. And when that day comes, the voice of God himself will say, comfort, comfort my people. Your sins are forgiven, your death defeated. Come now and stay. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for everything Advent symbolizes. We thank you for these two very special people we've read about today. I pray, Father, that as we finish up our Advent celebration and go into the new year, Father, you give us sweet thoughts of what it's like to wait for Jesus to come. Simeon and Anna know so much what it's like to wait for comfort, to wait for consolation, to fight through tears and pain, to fast and pray and fast and pray and fast and pray and day after day, 365 days a year. There goes the first decade and the second decade and the third decade until 21-year-old Anna turns 84. And then all her hopes are answered. The same thing will happen to us. Whether we have two more decades, six decades, or a thousand years, there will be a day when we will lift our eyes and see your salvation. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.